it's it well it's a question of of how how much our technological infrastructure gets simplified you know what level we're able to settle back to um i'm uh i believe we should build as many solar panels and wind turbines now as we can because they they produce electricity and we need to keep some semblance of a grid going for as long as we can why because we've digitized all human knowledge so if the grid goes down permanently we lose science medicine history you know <laughs> uh, our basically our whole culture and our whole knowledge base and our ability to share it and that would be a huge catastrophe for the survivors um and and an unnecessary one because we we do have the ability to maintain a grid at a much lower level not one where you know it's constant e-commerce and and pop-up ads and everything but just enough to be able to maintain and share absolutely essential knowledge that's really really important now beyond that i think you know we are going to have to simplify a lot of things we're going to have to localize our economies transportation will be transformed uh perhaps more than anything else because uh most of our transport modes are going to be hard to electrify yes they're electric cars fine but we're not going to have electric container ships going back and forth across oceans we're not going to have electric airliners delivering uh people and electronic goods you know uh from continent to continent so that means we're going to have to localize uh production and um and that that will mean simplifying a lot of things because right now the only way you can make a smartphone is with resources from three or four continents and somebody on another continent designing the thing and somebody on another continent figuring out how to market it and the, the and once they make the thing it ends up with a consumer on still another continent you know that kind of thing is not going to be possible anymore so we're going to have to rely more on local resources and that means you may not have a particular rare mineral that only exists in mongolia or some place and you'll have just have to do without that and that may mean having simpler tools and getting to know them better and having more satisfaction in learning how to use them properly Welcome, Dave and Steve here, and delighted to have you. We've got a real treat for you today. We really do. Okay, this is someone we've admired for many years, and often he's been a voice at the side that's always been... It's, it's often the sensitive people in society that could, you know, feel things before they happen, had a greater kind of awareness of possibly what was coming. And I've always seen him as one of these people that was always slightly ahead of the curve or a voice always on the side that I've always kind of really like admired and wanted to listen to more. Now, that's fascinating, Steve. But just want to say welcome to Happy Pair Podcast. We're delighted to have you. We genuinely are. And dun, 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 will you give me a drum roll, Steve? Okay, today's guest guest, yes, is the wonderful Richard Heinberg. Dun, dun, dun. Who is Richard Heinberg or who are you here? Who is he, Steve? Uh, Richard Heinberg is a journalist. He's written 14 books. He is a world expert on the area of sustainability and the area of peak oil and the area of climate change. Energy and climate change. And he's been in this field for like 
30 or almost probably 40 years so he's been really deep in the weeds of this area and we had honestly this is a paradigm shifting conversation which really has shifted and cemented down the necessity for for certainly we are committed to local and to build more resilient communities because it was just a really fascinating yeah, genuinely, like i don't want to give bending. off too much but this was like it's rare you have a conversation that it's an actual paradigm shift where I actually feel the core of me feels kind of slightly unsettled and I feel like I got to sit down and kind of go, right, how do I apply this? And it's almost like, it's almost like you sat down, a wiser parent sat you down and said, now, listen, you're drinking too much. You need to get a job and you need to pull your socks up and take responsibility. And now that doesn't sound too exciting, but this was class. It, it was really, one of really those was. conversations where you've had to sit and look, look in the mirror and kind of question yourself. It's a wonderful conversation. Richard is a wonderful voice, wise, wise voice that challenged my perspective, my paradigm, and has really given me hope at the end. So please, if at times you feel like it's feeling a little dark, Hold on. There's the, the kind of the montage is coming. There is hope. There are answers. We can the do unicorns this. Unicorns come in. No, this was great. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. We are most grateful. Thanks for listening to any previous episodes you have. We really, really appreciate it. We love doing this yeah, podcast. Yeah, this is one of our most favorite projects ever. Yeah, it really is because we get to just learn about things which we're fascinated by. So thanks for being part of it. We are most grateful for it. If you haven't listened to our other episodes in the community series, we've got loads and they're fascinating. We've adored them. So maybe do check them out. And finally, let us know if there are any guests that you think we should have on in the future. So anyway, hold your hat, hold your, brace yourself, get ready with for a, a mind-blowing conversation. Without further ado, we give you Richard Heinberg. Woo! How's Santa Rosa today? Uh, it, it's, it's good today. I mean, this, the, the city isn't on fire, so that's a good thing. Yeah. How's it super hot? It's not super hot today. It's like 80s something like wow. that. And has there been fires there recently? Because I, I heard you recently tell a story about in 2017 when you had an inkling that there would be fires and then you got woken at 3 a.m. and had to evacuate the house and all. Has that happened yeah. since then? Yeah. Well, we have had to evacuate in, uh, well, I guess every year since then. <laughs> but but that was the scariest because you could you could see the fires from our house and they were heading our way. But um, they've gotten much more precautionary about evacuating people since then, because, of course, a, num a number of people lost their lives in that fire. So they don't want that to happen again. So now they're evacuating people if there, if there seems like uh, any serious danger at all. So, uh, we, <laughs> of course, evacuating is... Uh, it, 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 is not pleasant. You know, you have to pack up everything and bug out and spend some time. All the hotels are, are of course already full. So you end up camping out in parking lots and things like that. So it's. And then you have to decide what possessions you're going to take. Yeah. Right. It makes you right. kind of appreciate what's really important and what's not. Yeah. Cause you don't really know if Do you take uh, your violin with you. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Glad to hear that. That sounds like it's food for And what book do you take? If you're only going to take one book, what do you take? Oh, oh good know, question, I, Stephen Flynn. I, I haven't taken books. I've just taken my computer and, uh, and my violin and our chickens are the main things. And then, you know, just some toiletries and a few clothes. 
<laughs> chickens, I love that. That's very cool. That's good. <laughs> Keep we don't want uh, our chickens burning up. No, no, definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. And, and what's the state of California like now? Is as the like because I know I've only visited LA once, and I was kind of in. I was found it very interesting that it was described as a desert and I'd never really thought of California and LA, that kind of area as being desert-like. And like, it seems like the fires are becoming more and more frequent. And, you know, I've heard stories about the aquifer and that the waters, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's diminishing. yeah, water supply is diminishing. What's, what's mm-hmm. it like there? And what have you noticed over the last kind of couple of decades? Well, it's getting drier. Um, we, we had a, a serious drought a few years ago, um, and then it did rain sort of normally for two or three years, uh, but that really wasn't enough to make up for the, the, the drought. And now we're in an even worse drought. So, uh, you know, climate change is hitting California pretty, pretty badly. And um, the future does not look good. <laughs> wow. for California, I have to say, with drought and wildfires, uh, uh, it's a it's a pretty dry place under normal conditions. I mean, we don't uh, in this part of California, and actually most of co- coastal California, there's no there's no rain during the summer months at all. I mean, we don't get rain usually from May until October. So things dry out, and uh, and that's why wildfires, you know, when they get going, it's really hard to to stop them if there's any wind. Uh, everything's so dry that, that it just goes right up. Wow. wow. We, we got two weeks here in Ireland just recently where it was uh, two weeks with no rain and it was like it was 25 degrees Celsius, which is like, whoa, you know, that was, That's we were all burning warm. up and couldn't wait for the rain. And it rained there the last couple of days. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but I was kind of glad, you know, it was quite <laughs> hot. <laughs> the irony of little Irishmen. Um, but Richard, we're huge fans of your work. We've always, any anytime I see on like, I remember seeing you on um, Helena Nurberg Hodges, uh, Happiness. I saw you in End of Suburbia. Listen to you. I've read a couple of your books. I've just always really over. admired your work. And well, think, I remember the party's oh. over. We got, a, got about two decades ago back via resurgence i think i bought it this resurgence was a magazine which we used to get a subscription which yeah. was what's his name Sadish Kumar. Sadish kumar's magazine and i remember mm-hmm. seeing ads for the parties over and buying it that was back kind of in the early days of the internet and reading it and kind of thinking and then reading all about your kind of power down and peak oil and all this kind of journey so we've definitely been been uh, keeping an eye on you over the last couple of decades and it's a real honor to talk to you genuinely so thank you so much for taking the time we're yeah. genuinely yeah. honored yeah well, it's yeah. great to hear thank you i'm delighted to be with you yeah. <laughs> lovely, lovely. one thing so the last couple of hours i've been reading lots of stuff i've been reading lots of your uh muse muse letter which i think is brilliant i think there's such incredible content in that and a kind of sense which i'm getting is that you know that that there's an inevitable kind of crisis coming in terms of climate economic you know there's there's civilization in a sense is starting to unravel or our current society where economic growth at all costs seems to be part of the current narrative could you talk about that and about you know what you cuz even even listening to it over the last couple of hours, I was like, wow, yeah, you really say it. You say what, what a lot of people are kind of implying, but they're not actually saying it because most people don't want to hear this message. So <laughs> like other than this, the likes of, you know, we did a podcast with this doctor, Dr. Zach Bush. He's a really incredible doctor. And he talks about, you know, the, that extinction is a possibility, you know, that the, the way we are living is so out of harmony with 
with nature and we're just such a such a dominant species that's not living part of nature that we're dominating it i'd love to hear your thoughts on that and and yeah i just find it fascinating yeah well um <laughs> you know we're victims of our own success uh we are in we are intelligent uh creatures that have been because of our flexible hands and opposable thumbs we're able to make and use tools and language is has been just the most amazing development you know the ability to string together thoughts in in highly uh, formalized ways so as to communicate really complicated ideas uh, that's enabled us to do just amazing things but one of the things that these abilities enabled us to do is to access and burn fossil fuels in order to do stuff. And once we figured that out uh, 150 years ago, um, all hell broke loose, <laughs> quite literally, because, you know, what do we do with fossil fuels? We burn them. And so uh, now we have billions and billions of little fires going on all over the planet, highly controlled fires. You know, we're using fossil fuels very intelligently and very efficiently to do all kinds of wonderful things, you know, heating our homes, uh, extracting raw materials, transforming them into consumer products, shipping them all over the world, uh, disposing of the waste, all of that. And, you know, we'd never been able to do anything at that scale before. So uh, this encouraged the growth of the economy. And as the economy grew starting in the late 19th century and through all through the 20th century, economists looked at this and they said, well, aren't we smart? You know, we've <laughs> it's they didn't attribute it to fossil fuels. They attributed it to the marketplace. You know, we're so smart, we're able to organize these markets and move things around and manufacture stuff and, and so on. And there's no end to human ingenuity and intelligence. So they, they couldn't imagine that there would be an end to, to fossil fuels and economic growth. It just wasn't part of their thinking at all. Uh, and then we got to the Great Depression, which was a problem caused partly at least by overproduction. Fossil fuels enabled us to produce so much stuff so fast that people couldn't, couldn't buy it all. So that they solved the problem of the Great Depression with, with uh, a couple of innovations, uh, more advertising and more consumer credit, and talking people into, into wanting more stuff and enabling them to buy on credit so they could consume now and pay later sometime. Who knows? And was when. that like a credit card? or, or Yeah, yeah. Um, all kinds of consumer home loans, uh, mortgages. I mean... That, that, that way of buying things didn't really exist in the 19th century. You know, people just paid cash. And, uh, and the whole idea of massive consumer credit, you know, trillions of dollars of credit cards and, and paying on time and mortgages and, and uh, bank loans and all this, that's, it's pretty recent stuff, really. So um, this, this transformed the economy from, a, from a, a, a sort of primitive capitalist economy 
to what's now called a consumer economy. It's all based on people consuming more all the time. And if you get people consuming more all the time, then there's more money flowing through the economy, which means there's more profits for companies. There's more returns on investment for investors. There's more jobs for you know, most people. Uh, there's more tax revenues for governments so that governments can provide more services. Everybody's happy as long as the economy is growing. And everybody assumes that the economy can grow forever. And, but, and the, under, the, the underlying principle of that is that yeah. there's never enough. There's never enough. Like we're never satisfied. There's, no, right. there's never an end to our ability to consume. Right. Because if, if everybody was just satisfied, then the, the economy would stop growing and all these expectations of continued growth would fall flat. People would be out of jobs. Governments wouldn't have enough tax revenues. Investors would be unhappy. The stock markets would crash. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. We can't have that. You know that that's disaster. So the economy has to grow. So every politician, you know, claims that they're going to make be able to make the economy grow more. And voters go out and they say, "Well, that's what we want. We want more jobs. We want, you know, all of this good stuff. So we'll vote for you." And there's no alternative. You know, nobody stands up ever and says gee, you know, isn't this physically impossible? Because <laughs> you can't continue to grow resource extraction and consumption on a finite planet forever. I mean, just since uh, 1995, the last 25 years, I guess, 26 years now, we've doubled society's consumption of all non-renewable resources, okay, just in the last 25 years. So, in the last 20, what that means is in the last 25 years, we've consumed as much as humans had consumed in all of previous human history, going back thousands and thousands of years. So if we wow. continue growing at the same rate over the next 25 years, we will have consumed as much as all of that. You can't continue doubling your consumption again on a, on a finite planet where we're running out of stuff like sand. And now, can you believe that? I mean, we use sand in, in everything as aggregate in, uh, in concrete. I mean, concrete is, the, is literally the foundation of modern societies. You can't build anything without concrete. So, you know, we, we need lots of sand for concrete. And it turns out you can't just use any old sand. You have to have a specific sand where the grains are sort of angular and they stack together. You can't just use ordinary beach sand or... And, and then the sand we use in, in semiconductors, the fine silicon, silicate sand, you know, that's very limited in supply. And so now, you know, they're digging up farmland in Iowa to get just the right kind of, of, of sand. And that's, that's a finite quantity. People who study this stuff are saying, you know, we're going to be in trouble in a, in a couple of decades. We won't have enough sand. That's just one <laughs> mineral uh, commodity, but you start looking at uh, you know rare earths and and copper and and it's not like we're about to run out of these things at at a finite date. We extract non-renewable resources using the low-hanging fruit principle, so we get the the highest quality stuff first, uh, the stuff that's easiest to get, and we leave the hard, dirty stuff for later. And increasingly, with everything, it's later, whether it's fossil fuels or iron ore or 
um, you name it, ore qualities are declining and the effort required to, to get the stuff is increasing and the waste produced in getting it is also increasing. So these are like flashing warning signs saying too fast, slow down and, and we're asleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah. And when you describe it, you describe it, you make something very complex sound, sound you know, quite accessible to someone with me that, you know, isn't as versed in this area. It sounds like that's pretty obvious. What, what, why, why at a political level is this constantly being overlooked and being, is it due to the short term, you know, politicians typically are in for four years. And is that the very nature of it, that it's all short sighted, you know, populist actions or is it the yeah. like wh wh why are the, is this simple I, I read one of your muse letters there which was talking about that very question Stephen which was saying that uh <laughs> that really it's just got so systemic that the problem is so far down the track that it's extremely difficult for a politician or a leader to stand up and change it because people don't want to hear it like it's a bit like you know it's a bit like telling people to change their diet it's difficult like people most people want to eat you know refined foods and easy tasty food they don't really want to eat the whole foods or change the diet you know so it's challenging it really that that, that was sorry I, i'd love to hear your answer it's that you're right you're absolutely right about that but it's more than that because you have a whole system of incentives that have been set up uh in the economy and in the political system to support anyone who says good things about growth and claims to be able to deliver more growth and disincentives for anyone who questions the possibility of growth or who says it's somehow not a good idea to continue growing. Um, and those incentives and disincentives are really, really powerful. I mean, when was the last time you heard a politician stand up and say, you know, we're just consuming too much and we've got to cut back? <laughs> I can't think of one. Yeah, they wouldn't you know, get very far. Jimmy Carter uh, sort of started to say things along those lines back in, in the uh, late 1970s when he was president here in the U.S. And, uh, and he was a one-term president in 1980. Uh, Ronald Reagan came along with a big advertising campaign saying, it's morning in America that we, we face a limitless future of growth and consumption and opportunity and nothing can stand in our way because we're Americans and we deserve it. And wow. of course, the American people said, yeah, that's, that's what we want to hear. That sounds no more of this. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so how do we like, cause it seems like, like a, a friend gave the analogy that we've spent too much time in the sweet shop and we need to get out of the sweet shop and, you know, sit down at the table and readdress what, how we form a more sustainable future. Like that's the, whereas this message, like literally over the last few hours reading all your stuff and coming up to date with it, I was kind of amazed with, sheesh, like it really is like Zach Bush was saying that we are on the cusp of a potential extinction event or that we are on these, like, you know, there is, as you were kind of saying, there's, there's a chance that civilization will unravel or there's going to be some type of catastrophe or some type of events. And there seems to be, you know, we're 41 and we've had this coronavirus going on over the last year, year and a half, and life's been kind of changing. Like, what are your thoughts looking forward to the future? Like, there's, there's, is there any turning this around or have we passed that? Like Naomi Klein, I remember her saying that 
you know the next 10 years is the is the crux that we've passed any solu- any possible solution that's not extreme we've already it's too late for it we we only have extreme solutions left yeah um i wish i could be more cheerful in in my answer but i i really don't see uh governments coming together to to resolve these these problems and you know it's it's more than just resource depletion we which we've talked about it's also of course climate change which we haven't talked about you know when you burn fossil fuels not only are you you know extracting these non-renewable and depleting resources but you're also uh, emitting co2 and other gases into the atmosphere which you know changes the climate and we're seeing that now i'm speaking to you from california where we've got an epic drought going on and, and uh, wildfires every year. The wildfire season used to, you know, a few just a few years ago, wildfire season started in in September and went through October. And now it starts in May wow. <laughs> and goes through uh, October. Um, and okay, that's just California. The other other places are suffering more than we are. Um, with, I mean, Germany just had these massive uh, floods. Okay, we we know climate change is is getting m- much worse. It's going to be a huge problem. So can't we just swap out our energy sources? You know, install a bunch of solar panels and wind turbines and keep living the way we are. Um, th- there are a lot of optimistic environmentalists who think we can, but you know, I've studied the 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 prospects pretty carefully. I worked for a year with a guy named David Fridley, who's on the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. He's the smartest energy guy I've ever come across in my in my whole career. And so he was he was generous enough to work with me for a year to study the 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 challenges and the opportunities of a full transition to renewable energy. And uh, and what we found at the end was, you know, everything is possible in principle. Everything works in the laboratory. Uh, a lot of stuff is getting cheaper. Solar panels are getting cheaper and so on. But when you start looking at, at the problem of scale, building enough to replace our current fossil fuel usage, not just for electricity, which is about 20% of the energy we use is in the form of electricity. And that's what solar and wind produce. But all the other energy that we use in transportation and agriculture and manufacturing and resource extraction and transformation and um, all of these, you know, key industrial areas, we could not see a way to do it. Uh, again, at scale, all, everything can be in, done in the laboratory. Even, you can even fly jet planes in principle <laughs> using electricity. You know, maybe not across the Pacific Ocean, but maybe you could get from San Francisco to Seattle or something like that uh, with an electric airplane carrying, you know, a few dozen people. But, you know, again, doing that at scale and replacing all of our current energy usage uh, would just be not just prohibitively expensive, but it would it would uh, there would be uh, bottlenecks for resources, because the the amount of lithium, for example, we would need for batteries. Um, Maybe there's enough lithium to do it once, but then what do you do when that equipment starts to wear out in 20 or 30 or 40 years? 
there wouldn't be enough to replace it. Um, Example after example after example, then producing all of this new infrastructure, because we're not just talking about solar panels and wind turbines, we're talking about the, the, the technologies that use energy like you know, airplanes and tractors and industrial equipment and, and so on, um, that would all have to be replaced. And building all of that stuff would require an enormous amount of energy if you're going to replace that much infrastructure that fast. And the energy we would be using would be coming mostly from fossil fuels because that's 80, 85% of our energy currently comes from fossil fuels. So at least in the initial stages of the energy transition, most of the construction you're going to be doing is construction fueled by coal, oil, and natural gas. So ironically, if we attempt to do an energy transition at scale, the result will be a huge pulse of greenhouse gas emissions, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid. So, you know, again, economic growth is the enemy of dealing with climate change, but nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like we're a society that's completely addicted to fossil fuel generated energy. And now we've got to come off this extremely addictive, you know, way of living. And and in turn, to try to find a, I, I, I liked an expression you said to try to find more satisfaction while consuming less power. And I think yeah. that's and like many people may not know that you're you trained as a violinist. And that you, that's that's how you came into this work or this career. And I think, you know, I think that's a nice metaphor, at least for me personally, that sense of to try to find. I, I loved the analogy that you've often given that sense of to try to we're humans. We we're very aesthetic people and we love beauty and it's to find more beauty and to express that more beauty. And in that, you know, we can find more satisfaction while consuming less power. Yeah. That sounds very I, philosophical. Yeah, well, um, I, I read a wonderful book uh, a couple of years ago when I was doing research for my my the, the book that, that I, I just finished and it's, it's power, about to come it? out. It's called Power. September, yeah, it's called Power. But that's the title of the book. Um, and, and the book I read in uh, one of a huge stack of books, dozens and dozens of books, I wanted to bring myself up to date on, you know, anthropology uh biology cell biology everything all the way up through uh anthropology and so on i wanted to get the latest you know what's the latest thinking uh to feed into what i was doing but one of the books that i read is called, called the evolution of beauty and it talks about how um nature is intentionally beautiful you know we look at nature and look oh gosh that's that's pretty great uh but it's not an accident um, all higher creatures that reproduce sexually, in, including flowering plants, but also, of course, birds and, and mammals and insects and, and so on, um, have what's called sexual selection as part of their, their evolutionary strategy. So usually males, sometimes females, devote an inordinate amount of effort to producing beauty so that they will attract the opposite sex and, you know, perpetuate the, the, the species. The, th the thing is, the production of beauty begins to, uh, in, in so many instances, uh, maybe every instance, I don't know, 
but in so many instances becomes detached from the practical aspect of reproduction and sexual selection and becomes an aim in and of itself. So birds, you know, they, they sing to attract mates, but often they just, they just go on singing and they, you can, uh, people who study birds very closely have come to the conclusion that, you know, a lot of times they're just enjoying not only their own songs, but the, so- the songs of other members of their species and even other species. Um, mockingbirds are, are great examples of this, you know, a huge repertoire of, of songs and they're, they're competing with each other like, like operatic tenors or something. And there, there's obvious aesthetic enjoyment. Well, we human beings are, are like that too. We, uh, we produce a lot of beauty and, it's, and it's, it's a way of using our extraordinary abilities, you know, tool making ability and language and all the rest in ways that often are not very resource intensive, that usually don't lead to bloodshed. <laughs> and you know, if we put more of our effort into aesthetic uh, production and enjoyment and less into having power over other people and power over our environment, we might have a very beautiful future. So this is kind of a philosophical that's idea a hard shift. Yeah, I like from- this. It's, it's almost like a, a, a kind of refocus from science and arts and information systems more into the arts, really, isn't it? And more into artistic expression and that sense of creativity. But, but that, like, it does sound philosophically wonderful. But then there's the, the, the reality that we've got these, you know, our whole system is built around capitalism and economic growth. And I don't know how you shift that into a beauty system that's designed around yeah. cultivating more beauty. You know, it, it sounds uh, maybe it will all unfold that way. And that would be wonderful. Well, aesthetics have been hijacked by capitalism. And, and there is what's called in... In biology, there's what's called aesthetic decadence. That's where um, you know the the competition for production and, and enjoyment of beauty takes off on its own, and it actually leads to the evolutionary uh, an evolutionary bottleneck for the species. The um, classic example is the Irish elk which is this type of elk that used to live in Ireland that started to evolve bigger and bigger antlers until the antlers were so large that, uh, and, and it was doing this for, you know, aesthetic purposes. If you were, if you were an elk, you would understand the aesthetic attraction of, of big antlers. It may be difficult for us humans, but for elks, it's, you know, it's, it's big stuff. But the, again, the antlers got so big that the, the elk just, uh, ultimately could not persist and they went extinct. Wow. Now we're doing the same thing with, with our aesthetic pleasures where they've been hijacked by capitalism and by consumerism so that most of the aesthetic consumption that we do in the modern world is all based on, uh, you know, just making money and, uh, and trying to, make us think particular ways, advertising, uh, public relations, everything is, is aesthetically designed to make us want to buy more. And so it's serving the very process of you know, consumerism and economic growth that is undermining our future. So we, we have to take back aesthetics from you know, capitalism and consumerism. 
And 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 once again, it, it needs to you know serve our our, our long term well being. Wow, it seems can, can one possible. Can I? Okay, yeah. Go it ahead. seems one possible solution, or one you know, obviously this is a multifaceted solution required if we are to continue to persist as a species, uh, you know, in continuum. But one of them seems to be an emphasis on community resilience and taking it, trying mm. to address this issue at a local level as opposed to waiting for, you know, the powers that be or the political system to come up with the solution. We have a new leader that's going to change the world. <laughs> Whereas I think it's down at the individual level, that sense of, you know, trying to connect in with our food source, trying to focus on regenerative agriculture, trying to get to know our neighbours, come together, focus more on localization. We, we had a wonderful interview with Helena Norberg-Hodge and she was just wonderful ability to articulate the importance of local economies. And another part of the solution was, uh, sorry if I'm talking a little bit too long, but uh, no. this guy Bruce Parry who spoke about... Okay, that, I wanted to talk okay, about you. Talk about, you no, no, about. no, I wanted to talk. <laughs> no, no, I'd love to hear your thoughts on local economies before we... I've got, I wanted to say something separate to that. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of local economies and how localism needs to be a new ism, a new relevantism to kind of counteract the global capitalism? Sure. I mean, um, global capitalism is, as we've been saying, it always wants to grow in scale, in organization, to the point where, you know, basically we have one company controlling everything and everybody works for that company. That's We're almost there with Amazon, <laughs> at least here in the US. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but it's like, you know... And, and especially during the pandemic, when everybody was was indoors, what did you, if you needed something? What did you do? You went on your computer, you pressed a few keys, and a day or two later, an Amazon Prime truck would drive up and drop off your package. Um, so we are alienating ourselves from the processes of production. That's the way I. Old-fashioned Marxist would describe the situation. I, I'm not a Marxist. I have a critique of Marxism, whatever. But Marx did get some things right, and and that that description of our situation, which is kind of a Marxist description, is very a uh, is is very astute. That's what's going. On. We're alienating ourselves from our own means of production, so that you know the big corporation controls everything, and we have no skills. Uh, we have no control over our, our lives. We're not in charge of designing any of the processes that we depend on for our survival. All we do is play our little role as consumers or in having a job working for the big corporation. That's it. Those are the only options. What kind of life is that? So the the, the way to get out of that is to relocalize production, to take back the processes of production into our communities so that we can not only participate in them, but also have oversight of them. And, and we help design them. We have a sense of, of agency and ownership. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to draw the same similarity. Like we work in food and we see the exact same with food that like food has become some, so globalized and it's such an easy thing to see that there's so little local production of food that so many of us are completely disconnected from our food sources and we just go to a supermarket and we buy it and we don't really know what's in season and we don't really know what's local. And it's all become a bit, you know, 
Great. Even even for us, you know, we're, we do our best to to buy Irish and to buy local. And for us, it's actually cheaper to buy organic carrots from Holland than it is organic carrots from just up the road. So there's sure. economic incentive incentive to almost support this globalized community than it is to the local one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, if you grow more of your own food, then what happens? You find out you've got too much of one thing, not enough of another. But if your neighbors are growing food too, inevitably you find, you know, like our, our neighbors have a, a, a big plum, their plum tree is producing a lot of plums right now. Well, we had to cut down our plum tree because it, you know, it was just getting old and diseased. So they're giving us plums, but we're giving them, you know, and, no, and nobody's trying to keep track because it's, it's just a web of mutual indebtedness where everybody understands that they're going to take care of, of, of each other. Now, what I'm describing is not a capitalist economy. What I'm describing is a gift economy. And that's how human beings lived for thousands and thousands and thousands of years when we were hunter-gatherers. Those were gift economies where people just shared what they had and made decisions on the basis of who had the most skill and experience in a particular area. And otherwise, everything was just basically consensus. I love that That's, idea. And that way of living is, is what we evolved for. It's what feels good. And the further away we get from that, the further we get toward this hierarchical, massive, global system that we were describing a few minutes ago, the more miserable we feel, the more alienated and depressed we feel. So by going back to localism, we're moving back toward a gift economy. We can't, I don't think we can do it all in one leap, but we're at least going in that direction. And that serves our evolutionary you know, satisfactions and desires and, and sense of, of safety and fulfillment and security. I feel a lot so, more hope when you talk about this. I feel hope. This is like <laughs> the music should start in the Disney movie the and montage the montage is happening. This is like, yes, Richard, we can do it. I believe. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I, I had one little story on that gifted economy. I remember back almost 20 years ago, I remember um, I was hitchhiking across the West Coast of America and I remember hearing Burning Man was on and I found my way to Burning Man and I got in and it was that year it was about gifting. It wasn't if, if anyone had something that you liked, it was about gifting. And it was the first time I'd experienced it was like, whoa wow, this is utopia. I thought it was phenomenal. <laughs> but anyway, that was... Yeah. I, I had a little... So we, we did a series on community where we've interviewed kind of a, a bunch of really super interesting people on the topic of community and how to build up more community resilience. And one of the guys we interviewed was this guy called Bruce Parry. Really interesting English guy who he presented a TV show called Tribe where he went to live with 15 different indigenous tribes all across the world. And he spent like a month living with these very kind of basic indigenous tribes and he, he 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 spent the first 14 episodes he was with all sorts of tribes in africa and south america and all sorts of places and the 15th tribe was based in borneo and they were called the penang tribe and he said that they were the one that was fundamentally different to how the other 14 tribes and how everyone else who he's ever met on the planet how they interacted and he said he had to spend lots of time and go back to the, actually to be able to articulate what was so different about them. And what he found was that their society or their culture or their way of being was based on egalitarianism. And that's what he called it, where, which I imagine is what you were talking about, gifting in just a different way, where there was no hierarchy, there was no competition. It was really about sharing resources. And it sounds very utopian, but that's what he kind of felt was 
human we we'd evolved on this and it's only been since agrarian and the industrial age that we've kind of got really into this competition and capitalism and this type of structures which we're in now yeah yeah well i i talk about this in the new book uh power uh how the origin of the first states about you know five thousand seven thousand years ago was uh a, a real turning point in uh, human evolutionary and social history. Um, the, the first states emerged because of grain crops, uh, grains like you know wheat and rye and oats and um, and so on. They can be stored and they can be taxed. Uh, so with grain crops, we get the the emergence of the archaic states, which were extremely hierarchical. Uh, king at the top of the social pyramid, and the king was assumed to be in touch with the the, the, the highest god. People create their religions <laughs> to to mirror their their social experience. That sounds kind of strange, but that's if you if you look through, uh, read anthropology carefully, and and this you know thousands of of human societies that have been studied, it's very consistent. You know, so if you have a very hierarchical society, you're typically going to have also a very hierarchical uh, religious sphere with um, you know maybe a pantheon of gods with one high god at the top, uh, and then. Uh, uh, religious functionaries also organized hierarchically. Um, anyway, all of this emerged with the with the first states, and they were they were extremely unequal. They, they were all slave societies. All of these early states had uh, enslaved people as a basic source of uh, of labor and um, and and applied energy, if you will. And it's ever since then, we've been basically trying one way or another to try to recover some of, of what we lost as a result of, of the, the emergence of those early states. And uh, sometimes we've been more successful than others. You know, the modern democracy is, is an effort to try to recover some of that egalitarianism that you, were, that you just mentioned. But it's not entirely successful, and and it's pretty slippery. Uh, you can see in some countries like like the United States right now, democracy is just kind of slipping away because there are all these other forces that are uh, pushing us back toward a, a more hierarchical and, and authoritarian uh, way of thinking. So, yeah, again, localism offers us the opportunity. It's, it's not a sure thing, but at least it offers us the opportunity to return to a, a more egalitarian way of relating to one another. And, um, and community, I, I'm glad you used that word because it's, uh, you know, I've, I've lived in intentional communities uh, in, in, in my earlier years. Uh, some of them Missouri? Were, were, I visited them, one in Missouri. I visited, yeah. um, what was it called? Because uh, I know you're from Missouri, isn't it? I visited uh, Sandhill Farm in Missouri, right? Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. I stayed in both. Dancing those. Rabbit's great. Yeah, those are those are terrific. <clears throat> and you've got Findhorn there in Scotland, oh, which yeah, has been yeah, going maybe. since the 1960s. But there are these these intentional communities dotted all over the the planet, and these are like little social laboratories where people have 
tried to experiment with uh, more egalitarian ways of, of making decisions and distributing uh, goods and, and so on. And, you know, some have been more successful than others. Some, the ones that are more religiously based often tend to be more hierarchical and, um, and others are, are, you know, go off on the sort of Marxist extreme or, or whatever. But, um, uh, you know, I think it, it was time well spent in my life. Um, I, I look back sometimes with, uh, with real fondness for the experience of working so closely together with good friends to try to really, you know, find meaning and find new ways of, of you know, just doing basic things that makes, make life work. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I recommend your listeners who are listening right now, if, if you know, ch go check out a, an, intention, an intentional community if you can and just open your mind to the, those prospects, because I think we need more of that social experimentation. We need feelers going out in all directions to see how we can do things differently, because the way we're doing things now as a globalized society is not working yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I see more and more. And even the pandemic is kind of has I, I was reading a muse, uh, one of your passages on your website where it was given an example or no, it was on the post carbon website where you gave the example of the I think it was the the wealthiest amount of Americans. Their wealth has grown by 60 percent over the last 18 months, whereas, you know, the average middle class or or lower class or have lost massive, like, you know, most people have lost huge amounts of money or any kind of assets they had have been lost value. Whereas the wealthy have become far wealthier. Which seems yeah. I think it was, it, I think it was something like $4 trillion that the, the, the sort of billionaire class had, had increased their, their wealth by about $4 trillion during the pandemic. And meanwhile, the working class had lost about $4 trillion in wages. So the pandemic was this huge wealth transfer. And uh, it's... How, how do... <laughs> Go ahead. I don't know. Yeah, because it seems like nowadays, like I see it that, you know, with, and maybe it's just my own little limited perspective on it, but it seems like more and more of us are working harder just to, to kind of tread water because the certainly in Ireland, the cost of housing, the cost of rent, the cost of living seems to all be going up where we all kind of consistently, most people are trying to work harder and work more just to keep the kind of water wheel going in an extent. So when you say it doesn't work, I can... I can really see that. I really can, like across society, across all sorts of different things. So but, does, but, does it, can I just finish yeah. the question? I was going to say, does it like, you know, the way, like instinctively I know, and as you said, like localism, moving to more local economy makes loads of sense in every sense. But does it take some massive catastrophe that forces us to reach this type of thing for these massive structures to change? Or that probably seems more realistic than yeah. the fact that we all wake up to change it before. For, for society as a whole, I'm afraid it will. Um, but, you know, we were just talking about, you know, those who are experimenting, who are who sort of see the way things are going and, and are willing to, to, to think differently now ahead of the crash. And that's what's really important. If, if we have no alternatives available, and the way we're doing things now comes apart, then we're going to be left with very, very few resources in, in terms of um, how, how to make 
the, the basics of life work. Um, so, so that's why building community resilience now ahead of crisis is absolutely key. Uh, you know, some of these localism efforts look paltry in comparison with, you know, the massive industries that, that they may be trying to replace or supplement or whatever. Um, but, you know, if we have, if we have nothing, then, then it, it, in a crisis, we could divert more resources to these alternatives. And at least there would be something to divert those resources to. But if we don't have the alternatives up and running, then in crisis, it's, it's going to be a much worse situation. And what kind of timeline, when you say the word crisis, like I just, I can only think of like Hollywood movies and because that's my only reference to crisis and the world kind of ending and structures changing and society shifting. Like now this is a total shut in the dark. Like how long do we have until these <laughs> crises start? When, Richard the when, Oracle. How long do we have to get ready? <laughs> See, I, I, uh, I, I've made mistakes before by trying to be too specific about, about you know, th- that kind of question. Nobody knows is the answer, but you know it's it's this it's not you know two centuries from now. This century will be the time in which basically all of these current systems come apart in various ways. It's likely that it will be a stair step sort of situation where you know this country will go to hell and and everybody else will be going oh I'm glad I don't live there and then another country and then another country or this industry and then that industry and and suddenly the supply chains aren't working very well anymore and the the whole economy just takes a stair step or two down and we find suddenly that we're in kind of an economic depression and people are going well we hope things get better but in fact actually things just sort of stabilize and then take another another uh dog leg down that's that's a very likely scenario then you have the scenario where the whole thing just, you know, maybe the climate feedbacks uh, kick in and we just have just utter global climate catastrophe and, and uh, the whole global economy just crashes more or less all at once over the course of a year or two. That's not out of the question. It's possible. But as to which scenario it will be, nobody can say. And exactly what the timing will be, you know, that's a fool's errand to try to forecast. Wow. wow. A, a friend of ours, can I just say this one thing? Because okay. it's kind of funny. And then you ask the question. A friend of ours who used to work with us, Anto Clavin, super, super lovely guy. He used to always, now jokingly, but there was bits of truth in it. In his backpack, he used to always be prepared for the zombie apocalypse. That's what he used to call it. And he used to jokingly call it the zombie apocalypse. But he always had a little tin with flint and matches and a knife and like tins of beans or a few other things. And it was like, it was kind of a joke. But there's, uh, when you talk, it seems like it was quite a sensible Anto's thing to have. Anto's quite ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, could I just say something about that? Um, there's uh, a whole field of, of studies, primitive technology, it's, it's called. And there are people who give workshops all over the place. You can learn how to do those things, start a fire from, from scratch, from rubbing sticks together or whatever, flint and stone, whatever it, whatever it takes, uh, how to make cord, how to butcher an animal, how, all of these things. You can take, you know, week a weekend or two week workshop and discover some, you know, 
basic skills. It takes a lot longer, of course, to really develop these skills to the level that our ancient ancestors did, because, you know, using stone tools sounds like, you know, what, 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 how difficult could that be? Bash, bash, bash. But actually, if you look at some of these stone tools made over the last 10,000 years, they were very sophisticated and people spent a lot of time uh, making them and learning how to use them. But, you know, learning some of that stuff is is extremely educational, not only in terms of, of understanding our whole evolutionary history as humans, but also in gaining some sense of competency in living in nature. You know, how many of us who, who have uh, city jobs and live in apartments and so on, how many of us would feel comfortable if dumped in the wilderness for, you know, five days? How many of us could even survive for a couple of weeks? Um, but having those basic survival skills and, and a little bit of experience makes you feel like a more competent human being. There's a self-confidence that comes with just knowing that you, if, if need be, you've got the basics covered. And then you can go from there and, you know, learning uh, small engine repair and thing, things like that. And the more of that kind of practical knowledge you have, the more competent you feel. And the more kind of, in essence, sustainable you are for yourself yeah. and for your own economic prosperity. And, and, and the more of a resource you are for your community, because most yeah, of the exactly. people in your community are not going to have those skills. And when you're talking about stone tools and whatever, do you see it getting back to like, because I bought myself a nice new drill there recently and it's like battery operated, so it needs to be recharged. So like, should I go back to a screwdriver? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're going to invest in tools, yeah, it's fine to have a, a, a power drill with a, a big lithium battery in the handle. You know, it's, it's very practical and handy. But uh, hand tools are very satisfying to use. In fact, even though they require more effort, they usually require also uh, more skill and care for, for both their use and their maintenance. And, you know, getting to know your tools and, and developing the skill for using them well is a great source of satisfaction. I'm, you know, playing a musical instrument. It's not about, you know, how can I automate this musical instrument so that I can just sit back and enjoy it playing itself? That's, you know, there's no satisfaction there. The satisfaction is in learning, applying yourself and learning the skills and adapting your brain and your, your, your and hands kind of and everything. Self-growth and constant self-development. Exactly. Constant self yeah. I loved, I was listening to a podcast last night and uh, one of the guys spoke, I think the German word for passion is Leidenschaft. And Leidenschaft, uh, you know, modern day perspective on passion is, oh, follow your dreams and pursue it. And it's all going to be rosy and a lovely downhill battle. But the, the, German, the direct translation means the ability to endure suffering. And that it's, it's that ability, like playing a musical instrument, that it's a challenging, it's hard to learn. Yeah. And it's only through that journey that you really appreciate when you suddenly start to sound semi-decent. It's like, wow, it took me years <laughs> to sound this bad, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if, two, two, two questions before I try to wrap it up, Richard. Uh, one was just, do you see possible cryptocurrencies as a solution in that it's a decent, it's promise to be a decentralized financial instrument you know i i i have never i haven't 
succeeded in getting myself excited about cryptocurrencies. <laughs> I've tried, but <laughs> um, you know, they they first of all, they're so dependent on uh, computer technologies, and uh, um, most of them are uh, very energy intensive. And I just uh, I, I don't see the, the value, frankly. Um, local currencies are hard to get started and often fail and so on. But um, some of them succeed, and and where they do, they engage the whole local community in a different way of thinking about the economy. So I'm I'm uh, more hopeful about local currencies than than I am about global cryptocurrencies like ethereum and bitcoin and all those those to me yeah go ahead no, I like that. I like the sense of local because, again, it's more empowering, like the sense of, you know, Ethereum or Bitcoin seem huge and these big institutions and these big things. Whereas, you know, we could, you know, 20 of us could today decide to come together. Let's set up uh, Richard and Steve and Dave crypto uh, digital local currencies and we'll trade it local. You know, it's, it's something that's a lot more empowering and a lot more seems achievable and a lot more relevant to our, you know, right now. Uh, I, I have a question yeah. in terms of, so like, you know, the way we live in a digital age where there's so much like we're having a conversation now over Zoom and it's on laptops and screens and digital things that all need fossil fuels to be created and whatnot. And like, do you see that we end up in an age where it is back to a stone? Like, or like, is it almost like, you know, the way we are so dependent on technology where we've got the Googles, the Amazons, the Facebooks, these are like the massive players, the Apples, these are the biggest corporations of our time that are creating digital devices. And you've got Netflix and all, like, it seems like we live in a digital economy. And, you know, these are all massively fossil fuel dependent. And if, you know, there is an unending, you know, if there is the kind of, the end of the line is coming to, at some stage, who knows when, that we could end up back in a stage where there's very little energy, like, you know, very little, it's a lot more local focused as opposed to global. Yeah, ab- absolutely. A lot more and, digital in uh, a sense then, because uh, analog. Do we go back to analog? Do we go back to sitting on the toilet and not looking at our phone? It's, it, well, it's a question of, of how, how much our technological infrastructure gets simplified. You know what level we're able to settle back to. Um, I'm. Uh, I believe we should build as many solar panels and wind turbines now as we can, because they they produce electricity, and we need to keep some sub- semblance of a grid going for as long as we can. Why? Because we've digitized all human knowledge. So if the grid goes down permanently. We lose science, medicine, history, you know, uh, our, basically our whole culture and our whole knowledge base and our ability to share it. And that would be a huge catastrophe for the survivors um, and, and an unnecessary one because we, we do have the ability to maintain a grid at a much lower level, not one where, you know, it's constant e-commerce and and pop-up ads and everything, but just enough to be able to maintain and share absolutely essential knowledge. That's really, really important. Now, beyond that, I think, you know, we are going to have to simplify a lot of things. We're going to have to localize our economies. Transportation will be transformed uh, perhaps more than anything else, 
because uh, most of our transport modes are going to be hard to electrify. Yes, they're electric cars, fine, but we're not going to have electric container ships going back and forth across oceans. We're not going to have electric airliners delivering uh, people and electronic goods, you know, uh, from continent to continent. So that means we're going to have to localize uh, production and um and that, that will mean simplifying a lot of things because right now the only way you can make a smartphone is with resources from three or four continents and somebody on another continent designing the thing and somebody on another continent figuring out how to market it. And the, the and once they make the thing, it ends up with a consumer on still another continent. You know, that kind of thing is not going to be possible anymore. So we're going to have to rely more on local resources. And that means you may not have a particular rare mineral that only exists in Mongolia or someplace. And you'll just have to do without that. And that may mean having simpler tools and getting to know them better and having more satisfaction in learning how to use them properly. Wow. Jeez. And do you see... uh... Like travel? What about like going on holidays and stuff? Or will you be going on holidays by horse and cart again? Or well, maybe, can, maybe, maybe, like, maybe, I just, well, just want to get rich can, can, I, can I just uh, offer, offer an, an effort at that? Like the very nature of it is currently the current economic paradigm is that we constantly have to be producing more. So, you know, as you said there, we need to be working more to literally stay afloat at the moment as it currently mm-hmm. is. If it, the whole economic model changes, you know, if you look at more indigenous cultures, typically they work three, four hours a day and they have a huge amount of time to relax. So there isn't this necessary necessity to constantly go on holidays to relax so I can go back and I can go full tilt on my caffeine induced, you know, more, 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 more lifestyle. Yeah. Possibly that's yeah, my well, effort. If, if you're enjoying your life, um, I mean, why, why do you want to escape it? Um, now, right, right now we, we go on holidays a lot of times just to visit family and friends because we've gotten so scattered. And the reason we've gotten so scattered is because it's possible because transportation is so freely, widely available and so affordable that, you know, um, people, people are born in one place and end up uh, going to school in a different one and have jobs in five or six other places and then retire in, in still another place. That's not how people used to live. And I don't think it's how people are going to live in the future. We're going to be more set in place, which means that we'll have an investment in a particular place and the people who live there, we're going to get to know them better. And we will have a sen- more of a sense of responsibility for the soil and the water and the ecosystems that we're born into. And that's a good thing. Wow. It sounds like such an interesting, like we've got an interesting few decades ahead of us. You've offered me a total paradigm shift, like a sense of, you know, and, and it, it, it epitomized the, that old metaphor of less is more. You know, it's in essence like it was. Get used to we're learning Irish at the moment, and we met a kind of lovely guy from Clare, Jason, and he said there was an old Irish expression that um, "enough is a feast." Yeah, and I thought, great. like I'd never heard something like that, and I just thought there's such profoundness in that I'd never heard that. Uh, but it was yeah. it wasn't just that it was enough is a feast, and it said 
real reward comes from giving or something the real joy yeah, comes yeah, from giving or something like that was the other part of it that it yeah. was enough is a feast but when you've when you can give to other people and that's the real joy it was some yeah. kind of old irish Back expression the gifting but, uh, yeah. but richard yeah. you've been fascinating fresh there fascinating can, can you tell us about your new book because i knew you, you know your new book is coming out and it's talking about power and it's um, please could you a tell lot us of what we talked it? about i believe yeah yeah well um i could go this on for another hour book. talking about it but um the book is about power in all of its in, in all of the meanings of the word. Um, it, physical power, the rate of, at which we use energy, uh, and social power, our ability to influence uh, other people, and how so how power evolved all the way back from uh, I start with cellular, you know, energy transfer, all the way up through uh, biological evolution. In the first chapter, in the second chapter, in human evolution, how we developed our unique abilities, linguistic and tool-making abilities, and control of fire, and, and so on. And then the origin of the, of the early states and the social evolution all the way up to what we were talking about earlier, capitalism and fossil fuels and so on. We have become incredibly powerful as a species. And... You know, we are overpowering nature and one another. So we have to learn how to, to limit our power. And limitation of power also goes back all the way through biological and social evolution. People uh, and other organisms know that it's possible to overpower one's context. And we've developed ways of reining in power, of keeping bullies from constantly you know, uh, disrupting things and so on. Okay, we we've lost a lot of those abilities over the last couple of hundred years because we've had so much power that we thought, well, we can do anything. There's no limits. The sky's the limit. But uh, we need to regain some of those power limiting attitudes and behaviors that actually make community and life a lot more secure and enjoyable for everyone. And we got to do that fast. Um, now, will we? There, in the book, I argue that you know there are a lot of things that are keeping us from doing that, and and we may not do it in time to prevent catastrophic climate change and all these other things. However, that said, if we're going to have a future as a species, and that's that's a real question. The subtitle of the book is "Limits and Prospects for Human Survival." So, human survival is not a given. It's it's we are going to determine this century, whether our species sticks around. And ultimately, it's going to depend on our ability to relearn those self-limiting attitudes and behaviors. If we don't, then not only do we deplete resources and change the climate, but we also have wars that could, in and of themselves, uh, you know, end the human experience. So that's it. It's kind of a big picture book. And it's it's the capstone of of my whole career as a as a writer. I'm not that I'm going to stop writing now. But this is your fourteenth book, isn't it? Yeah, I don't I don't expect to produce you know another book on on this scale. It's kind of okay. This is this is the message in the bottle that I'm I'm sending this out. Is a big one. <laughs> wow. Interesting that you said that. Uh, like the sky is the limit, and that makes me think of three of the wealthiest men in the planet on a race to get into space. Where yeah. you're kind of going. What kind of example is that really, you know? That's so obscene, you know, the, the amount of resources and energy that were used 
to send these guys into space for just a few minutes. So it's like, you know, a carnival ride. Okay. You know, so they can have this little joy ride, but, but you look at the, at the ecological destruction and the, and the, the greenhouse gas emissions and, and everything that that went into doing that. And it's, it is literally obscene. Thank you so much for taking the time, Richard. You're brilliant. It's been a real honor to get to talk to you and to chat to you and hang out. And thank you so much for the refreshing ideas. You've totally... And I look forward to reading your book because I remember dad reading your book, The Party's Over, and I'm going to buy him this one. (laughs) Good. Terrific. Yeah. Well, it's been a real joy talking to you two as well. Well, Yeah. Well, hopefully we do it again sometime in the future. Be glad to. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. Richard. Thanks so much. Mind yourself. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was mind-blowing. I genuinely feel that was a paradigm shift that was offered to me. The idea of us going back to a more primitive society and really trying to embody that sense of less is more, is mind-blowing. I don't know. I feel like I got to sit in a dark room and allow the... The, the, the seeds of my brain to kind of percolate. But I could also see why it's such a hard message for most people to, like such a tough pill to swallow because no one really wants to hear that, hey, we're going back kind of towards the Stone Age. Yeah, like yeah. I can really understand why it's not a populist message and it's not a political message. It's not any political agenda, but it seems so relevant when, when, I, when I see from my own experience how we're living and how it really does seem like the you know, the, the, the wheel is spinning faster and faster. Anyway, Richard, Richard Heinberg, that was brilliant. I hope you really, really enjoyed that. I guess it's time to the, start my, thinking my more big, local. My big take-homes are really focus on local resilience and really try to cultivate and to learn more of these practical skills that we can apply to our community to bring more value. And I guess all the things which we've talked in this, the community series, which we did, all of those I think are as relevant as ever because it really is about cultivating local skills and local resilience for this local economy. And finding the beauty in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Thank you so much for taking the time. If you've made it this far, do check out Richard. He's fascinating. I'm I'm definitely going to buy his new book. Um, Please do, if you enjoyed this, please tag us on Instagram and we'll reshare it. Big shout out to Sean Cahill and to Sarah Fawcett who produced this show. We are most grateful. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. We send all our love and here's to local future. Cheers. Cheers.